0: The Old Testament reading is found in the bulletin. It's Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. The New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry plant, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare a supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord.
1: yet, we made this announcement earlier. Uh, there is, is, instead of having business cards now, there is a pad under the seat of along this aisle, the inside aisle. And we would like for you, so I, I think a lot of you did this, I just want to make sure that everyone understands. You, uh, person, Paul, for instance, take it and put his name down here as a member. Visitor would sign up here, and then you pass it down the aisle, down to the end, and every person fills it out and then passes it back up. This allows you to know the people who are sitting on your pew. Every week we talk about seeing somebody here that you don't know. Well, this helps us to reach out to each other and also uh, helps uh, all of us to see who is visiting with us. So if it wasn't done this morning, uh, during the I speak to be done during the offering, if it wasn't done, if you didn't do it on your aisle right uh you know this morning while we were doing the offering, get it right now and do it. Kids, take off to your prospective classes. We return this morning to the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 17. What are we doing in Luke? Why are we here? We're looking at the life of Jesus. He lived a life like no other. He was the incarnate Son of God and proved it every day of his life. He made the blind to see, made the paralyzed to walk, the deaf to hear. Everywhere he encountered the results of the fall, he pushed back the darkness. When he met people with leprosy, he healed them. When he met a funeral procession, he raised the dead. Yet he came with this single purpose. That was not his purpose. This was his single great purpose. He came for the purpose of taking our sin, our guilt, and our punishment on himself. He had no sin of his own, so he could take ours. That's what the cross is all about. There's no other story like this story, and that's exactly why we're in the gospel. The good news as recorded and told by Dr. Luke. Our message this morning from Luke 17, true righteousness. Lord, how can we do that? Before we look at this passage, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we bow before you this morning as priests, all of us who name the name of Christ are called not only to be prophets taking the word of God to the world around us, but we're called to be priests bringing the world around us before you. And so, Father, this morning, as always, we bring those of our own Church family before you. We pray for Jim Bennington, Father. We thank you that he can be here this morning, and we pray that you would bless him and give him strength. For Billy Griggs, the same prayer, Father, that you would bless him at this time in his life, and may he know your presence with him and remember your word. We pray for Priscilla Turner. We thank you for, Father, her stalwart faith. For the example that she has been to all of us. We pray that you would continue to give her an anticipation of the glory that's coming. Our Father, we pray that you would bring healing to her body. We pray this morning for Ann Snowden's stepson. We ask that you would give him life. That you would heal him. Now, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. He cannot speak so that we're changed from the inside out. So, Father, we bow before you once more. We've heard your voice in this place, and we yearn to hear it this morning. For the glory of Christ. Amen. True righteousness. Lord, how can we do that? In chapters 15 and 16, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees. They were the religious rulers in that day. They were incredibly, we've seen, meticulous in their practice of the faith. But it was all for naught. Their problem was that they had missed the entire message of scripture concerning salvation. In chapters 15 and 16, Jesus had exposed the emptiness of all of their religious efforts. And their religious efforts were incredibly visual. They had looked so good on the outside, but it was all a show. It was all external effort. There was no internal reality about it. The religion that was outside that they were practicing did not come from the heart. Jesus had said they were like, he looked at them and he called them. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bows. After exposing the Pharisees in chapters 15 and 16, and he spoke strongly to them. We've seen it these last few weeks. Jesus turns then to his disciples. And begins to speak about, and he begins to sp- begins to speak about how they should practice true righteousness as opposed to the false righteousness of the Pharisees. That is where we begin this morning. Jesus is saying, Don't be like the Pharisees, but be like this. So he begins to show them what tr- true righteousness really is. He begins by saying, Be careful, disciples. You are susceptible saints living in a fallen world. Be careful. You are susceptible saints in a fallen world. Look at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, no longer to the Pharisees, to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. We've said it. These words were spoken to the disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, he had been bantering back and forth with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and their religion had been blocking the kingdom of heaven. They had actually been encouraging by their religion. In their religious practice, they had been encouraging sin by their religion Instead of encouraging real righteousness. So think about that. They're out here practicing this righteousness in extreme ways. And Jesus says, actually, you're leading people away from God. You're leading people to sin. They had been keeping the law outwardly, but they were walking all over it in their hearts. Jesus said to his disciples, temptation and sin are sure to come. What's Jesus saying? We live in a fallen world. Sin is, sin is there. It's all around us. It's inside of us. It's outside of us. It's, it's, it's sure to come. But woe to the person who encourages others to sin. It would be better that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. A millstone was... A huge, huge stone that had been cut in a particular manner to, to grind grain into meal and into flour. It was in the shape of a wheel and it was so heavy that it had to be pulled by an ox or a mule. The largest or the strongest person we know could not lift or even budge a millstone. So if someone were thrown into 300 feet of water with a millstone around his neck, it would take him straight to the bottom. Jesus was saying that person would be in a hopeless situation. And he said, it's better. It's better for you. That a millstone be hung around your neck and you be in a hopeless situation. than lead others to unrighteousness. Then lead others to sin. Jesus was saying, "On these teachers, on you Pharisees. A real judgment is going to fall. You're not leading people toward God. You're leading people away from God. I can remember, I can well remember the very first time I heard a minister teach in a way that would cause people not to trust scripture. The first time I I heard a teacher that teach in a way that would lead people away from the gospel. I was a freshman in college. Every minister I'd heard speak to that point in my life had trusted Scripture and had had, had preached the truth of Scripture, the truth of salvation. They had been preaching that salvation only came through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this man, he was a minister. He opened the Bible and began to speak scornfully about the miracles of Christ. He said that that no true intellectual could believe these things. He taught his class that the Bible could not be taken as God's word. He called the incarnation, the deity of Christ, the atonement from sin through the cross. He called it primitive teaching that was completely passe. I watched students who would come from Christian families begin to doubt. I watched hundreds of college students follow this teaching and, and walk away from the gospel, walk away from the truth of scripture. This man was not a pagan. He had a Bible in his hands. He was saying, this is righteousness. And his teaching pointed an entire generation of college students away from Christ, away from God's word. On your scripture sheet or your Bible, look at Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. My teacher was like one of the Pharisees. He he was shutting up the kingdom of God. He was saying, that's not the way to God. The cross is not the way to God. Now, lest I would say, I say, I would never do anything like that. Look at what Jesus said to his disciples. After he had told them this, he said, Mark, or he said, Matthew, John, Peter, Andrew. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus was saying, people will call you apostles, but you can become like these Pharisees. You you, you can lead folks away from the kingdom instead of toward the kingdom. Don't do that. Look at your righteousness. Be sure it's a righteousness that is pointing people toward the cross, toward salvation through Jesus Christ. My greatest fear, my greatest single fear as a minister is that I walk into this pulpit And I will lead you away from Christ, away from the truth, instead of toward the truth. And you can hear that, and you can say, I'm glad I'm not John or Tyler. I'm glad I'm not a minister. I'm glad I'm not a teacher. People, this scripture is for every disciple, every follower of Christ. To all of us, Jesus says, you pay attention to yourself. Our lives will either lead our families, our sons and daughters, our grandchildren. will either lead them toward Christ or away from Christ. Parents, grandparents, what is your life? What is your righteousness? Your righteousness in Jesus Christ. What does your life say to your children and to your grandchildren? It is leading them toward Christ or away from Christ. Is it leading your neighbors toward Christ or away from Christ? Is it leading your friends toward Christ or away from Christ? Jesus said, be careful. You're susceptible to this. You are susceptible saints and you're in a fallen world. Be careful that you practice a righteousness that points people toward Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus said, remember. Peter, Matthew, John. Remember, you are a caring community of grace. If you're going to practice true righteousness, you must be a caring community of grace. Look at verses three and four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He begins, If your brother sins, rebuke him. So are we then to be sin police? We get up every morning, we put a badge on and say, I'm sin police. I'm going to point out sins today. God appointed me to rebuke you of your sin. Is that what we do? Let's understand, you know better than that. Let's understand what this means. If your brother sins, well, all brothers sin. We've all sinned enough this morning. If we're to rebuke, every sin of every one, then that's all we'll do from sunup to sundown. So it's obvious that's not what he meant. So it must be sins too. It must be sins in some way that are related to you. And you notice he says there, if he sins against you seven times in a day, so you somehow know that's a sin against you or a sin that affects you. Three. Since he has just been speaking of the Pharisees leading people astray with their sins, it must be sins that put people in particular danger, either the one committing the sin, or the one he sins against. I mean, he just said it'd be better if you're if you're righteous leading people away from, it's better than a millstone be hanged around your neck and you be thrown into the water. So. Uh, It it must be sins that put us or the person in particular danger. Four, the fourth comment we would make about it, we must always, hear me, we always rebuke and speak as a fellow sinner. He says, if your brother, if your brother, he doesn't say the pagan down the street. He says, if your brother, the one that's a brother in Christ, if your brother, he's one of us. I must go to him. How? Not with my badge, but I've been, I've been there. I, I'm a sinner too. We don't come saying, I, I, "I could never do anything like this." I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing. This. I used to say to my children sometimes, I can't believe you're doing that. And then I would stop and think about my own childhood. I should easily believe they were doing it. And, I, and that's how we're to approach our brother. We cannot come as one who says, I would never do anything like that. And we, we must come as one, fifthly, we must come as one who cares. Are we a community looking at, that's what, that's what this is. He's saying be a caring community for each other. The emphasis here is not on the rebuking. It is on the forgiveness. Notice Jesus does not say keep on rebuking. He does say keep on forgiving. When your brother sins and he comes back home, you receive him with grace. You forgive him. And if he sins again and comes back home, you forgive him again. If he sins again and comes back home, you forgive him again. He says, if he does it seven times in a day, you still welcome him back in grace. Remember the older brother, Tyler, took us through this in the parable of the prodigal son. When the the prodigal came home, the brother did not want him back. What did the brothers do? The brother looked at him and said, what's he doing here? I can't believe he would sin like this, waste his life like he did, and then come home. I can't believe anyone is glad that he came back home. Why is this so important? Why is it? Is it it just so important that, that, that we just show grace and show this love? Why is it so important? Listen to me. How you treat, how we treat sinners returning home is important because it will disclose what we think about ourselves. How I receive sinners coming home will reflect what I think about myself. It will disclose whether you see, whether I see myself as a sinner who's in need of grace or whether I'm just above it all, say I'd never do anything like that. People who love repentance and grace. Do you love repentance? Do you love grace? People who love repentance and grace. You know why we love it? Because we've been there. There's nothing like when you're you're full of dread and you're full of guilt and the darkness is there and it's weighing down in you. There's nothing like the cleansing of Calvary. There's nothing like the grace of God that washes it away and embraces us. And when we do not welcome the sinner, we're saying, "We, we, we don't need grace like that. We're above it. There was a Sunday school teacher who had just concluded teaching her lesson for the morning and she wanted to be sure she made her point. So she asked her class of children, can anyone tell me what you must do before you can obtain forgiveness of sin. Of course, she was looking for you must repent, confess and repent your sin. So the question was, what must you do before you can obtain forgiveness of sin? There was a pause. And then one little boy in the back of the room raised his hand. She said, all right, what is it? He said, before you can receive forgiveness of sin, you must sin. Let me tell you, that is a brilliant, a brilliant answer. The church is full of people today who have no idea that they've sinned. They don't need repentance. They don't need confession. This begs the question of all of us. When was the last time you fell on your face before God and confessed the darkness of your own heart and your own sin? A lot of Christians act. As if they have received God's grace without really sinning. They've received God's mercy without really sinning. They receive God's love because they deserve it. And they don't receive sinners with grace because they really don't think that they themselves have sinned. Be careful you are susceptible saints in a fallen world. Be sure your righteousness is leading people toward Christ. Remember you are a caring community of grace. Be forgiving. Of that fallen brother. Thirdly. As you practice true righteousness. You must remember the power. Of even a feeble faith. This is one of the most misunderstood passages. In scripture. Remember the power of even a feeble faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord. Increase our faith. And the Lord said. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree. Be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. What happened? The apostles heard Jesus saying these hard words, leading people away from their righteousness, leading people away and from God and into sin. That, that they must forgive their brother seven times if your brother sins against you. Seven times you've got to forgive him in a single day. And their response was, we can't do that. Increase our faith. And Jesus replied, was a mild rebuke. He was saying, guys, it's not the quantity of faith. It's the presence of faith. If you think you have the least amount of faith, if or he said, if you do have the least amount of faith, you can do what you think is quite impossible. And then he gives them this hyperbole. He pictures this ridiculous scene. If you have faith as small as a grain of mustard, a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. When I was a teenager, I, I hadn't seen one in, in years and years. Those of you who are my age, remember the, the, the necklace that a lot of girls wore in high school? And it, it was it was a, a clear glass ball and it had a mustard seed inside of it. The mustard seed was so small, but what that the reason it was inside that glass was so that we magnified so you could see it. And it wore like a necklace. So he Jesus picks out a seed that everyone knows is so small. And he said, if you have that much faith, he says, you can say to this mulberry tree, and he was speaking of a black mulberry tree, and, and they have extensive root systems, huge root systems, that, that enable the tree to live 600 years. And so he was saying your faith, he didn't. it's not only that you could plant it in the sea with your faith, he said you could uproot it. You could not, you didn't uproot mulberry trees. He said that little faith would uproot a mulberry tree, and you could plant it in the water, and it would grow. Well, mulberry trees aren't going to grow in the water. Can't happen. It's impossible. Jesus was saying, Peter, John, James, you don't need more faith. The smallest amount of faith can do the impossible. How encouraging should this be to us? Watchman Ni was a Chinese Christian leader and and writer. He was born in 1903, died in 1972. He was imprisoned by the communists in 1952. Twenty years later, he died in that same prison. His best known work is titled The Normal Christian Life. In that book, he captured what Jesus was saying to the disciples here. He said it was normal, he said it was normal for a Christian, for a Christian to forgive his enemies. He said it was unusual for the world to do that, but for the Christian, he said it's normal. He said it's normal for the Christian to love across Racial and cultural lines. It's unusual for the world to love across racial racial and cultural lines. And and he went on with this. He he picked out extreme examples. You know, someone dying for their faith. He said, that's normal. He said, you know, every century since, since the time of Christ, every century has been full of Christian martyrs that have given their lives, common people, ordinary people like us, that would die rather than deny their Savior. He said, that's normal. That's what he was capturing. That's what Jesus was saying here. He's saying, you want to escape from forgiving someone seven times in a day by saying, oh, that's so abnormal. I need this huge amount of faith. Jesus increase our faith, Jesus is saying. You're only doing what I've called you to do. When you forgive someone seven times, he said, anyone with faith can do that. Anyone with a small amount of faith can do that. Don't make a big deal of it. What a rebuke. Increase our faith. Jesus looked at Peter and said, I don't need to increase your faith, Peter. You need to get serious about your faith and understand what I've called you to do. Be careful you're susceptible saints in a fallen world. Be sure that your righteousness is leading people toward Christ and not away from Him. Remember, you're a caring community of grace. Don't forget that. Your salvation depends on it. If you're not receiving that sinner at home as a brother, then you probably haven't realized that you yourself are a sinner. Remember the power of even a feeble faith. Don't look at what God calls you to say. That's, that's beyond. Four. finally, remember when you, I love this. I just, I love this. Remember when you are a successful servant, remember you're still a servant. Remember when you are a successful servant, when you've been successful in practicing your righteousness, remember you're still a servant. Look at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, you say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Following on what we just now said. Following on that. Remember the power of feeble faith. Following on him saying, Peter, you don't need faith. You can forgive this. Jesus is saying, and Peter, don't forget. When you do that, when you forgive somebody seven times in a day, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't crow about it. Don't turn to John and say, John, seven times today I did it. You know, don't say to each other, we've loved our enemy. We've loved those stinking roads. No. When you accomplished what I called you to do, don't forget, you've only done what I told you. When you've forgiven seven times, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't crow about it. No. You know, when you go to work in the morning, you're supposed to be at work at 8 o'clock. Does, does, your, does your boss come to you every day? Say, thank you for coming in at 8 o'clock. It's, you're just so great for doing that. It's fabulous. What if you go to your boss and you say, I have been on time every day this week. I've been here at 8 o'clock. So? So? That's what Jesus is saying right here. Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, tells he Reagan, one thing you've got to admire about Reagan, he, he was just always so self-facing. He could, he could talk about his, 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 his own foolishness. And when he was governor of California, he was in Mexico City speaking. And he said that he spoke and there was very little, a huge crowd, and there was very little response from the crowd. He so he didn't understand it, but, and so he sat down, and another official got up and spoke. And when that official got up and spoke, the people were laughing and cheering and clapping. And, and <laughs> I was so embarrassed, so I started clapping and cheering. He said the ambassador, our ambassador to Mexico, leaned over, and said, "Governor." I wouldn't do that if I were you. He said, why? He said, he's interpreting your speech. You're cheering yourself. We don't want to. Jesus says, no. You don't cheer yourself. You can cheer for each other. But don't cheer yourself. You've only done what I've commanded you to do. The navigators are well known. the the Christian group, the Navigators, are well known for their stress on having a servant attitude. A businessman once asked Lone Sanny, who is the president of the Navigators, he said, how do you know when you have a servant's attitude? And Sanny replied, here's how you know you have a servant's attitude. When someone treats you Like a servant, do you get offended and say, I deserve better treatment than that? Or do you say, I just got treated better than I should because I'm not just a servant. I'm an unworthy servant. Our hymn is most appropriate. When I survey the wondrous cross.